everybody. Welcome back to the Catholic Reading Challenge and our second podcast episode for July and discussing our author Guy de Maupassant. French. Very good pronunciation. Thank you. Um, I think. I don't I, speak French. I think I think it sounded good. Decent. I, I mean, that's all I have. Basically, all I have to show a little bit of pronunciation is basically all I have to show for four years of French. I took um, three years of French, but I failed two years of it. So I don't know if you can really say I took three years. Yeah. Failed French twice. Well, and I think my senior year teacher just kind of hooked me up. So I didn't, <laughs> I'm dead serious. I didn't have to go to a you summer at least school. Pass the class. Terrible French student. Well, our author was a wonderful french writer we were just talking about how prolific he mm-hmm. was and i i mean i really when you sit down and think about like you know close to i guess 300 stories that's kind of remarkable yeah you were talking about this so i don't know what to compare that to like if we were going to look at i mean i think there's other people who have who might be cl- up there with him i'm just saying is and, all did he write just short stories or does he have any novels? i believe he has a couple of novels as okay well. um but I think predominantly stories. But that's, I mean, given how we've talked over the course of this year about what goes into a short story, just because it's a short story and not that much space, I mean, I don't think you, once you've read some of these works of art, you you see that they're, they don't just come together easily. In fact, one could argue that because you have this economy of words to work with, what you're trying to accomplish could be much more challenging than if you have all the space of a novel to work with. So I think what what an author gets done with done in, a, in the space of a short story is kind of uh, a feat. Yeah, especially if the story feels complete and when you're reading it, you feel sucked into the place, into the characters, which is definitely the case with this author. Um, when, I, when I read the one that we read last time, And this one. um, Yeah, last time we read the necklace. You're just kind of transported into the world he creates. Now, something I find impressive is he clearly wrote in French. So the person who's doing the translations is doing a fantastic job as well. Yeah. And some people, well, we could also be reading slightly different translations with different people. I don't know um, how standardized the translation of his stories has been Mm -hmm. into English. So I don't know if you come across different versions, if they're going to be. Have I don't know how distinct the difference is would be. I don't think I know enough about translation process there, but I'm sure there'll be little differences here. Like I know this is the first time I've read this one, Ball of Fat, that we're talking about, which the original French title, and I don't know if my pronunciation is correct, Boule de Souf, I think. So you don't say the E? It wouldn't be Boule de Souf? No, you do not. Boule de Souf. <laughs> you said Boule de Souf? Boule de Souf, I think. Yeah. But I'm right. not, Again, very good. I'm not sure if the UI very good. is that. So I'll go with that. But this was written in 1880. Uh, we chose this one because this is said to be his, um, maybe his best work. It's really good. Story. <laughs> we So the necklace was certainly one of those stories that demonstrated his skill with plot twists, sure. which we talked about last time. But not only does this have elements of plot twist. But this story really gets to some significant issues with human depravity. Yeah. It's funny. When I finished it, I finished it later than Jessica. That's why we're podcasting (laughs) on August 5th. But when I did finish it, I was at school. I've been going into um, school just trying to get in some type of regular rhythm, even though nobody's there. But 
since the, the COVID, the lockdown, life has been very strange and I haven't had to go anywhere. So the idea of like waking up, exercising, praying, going to school. So I'm sitting in my room. Nobody's there. There's really no reason for me to, to be there. Also, full disclosure, and I love my family. I love my kids. <laughs> but I think the lockdown started or school March. closed on March 15th, right? 13th, maybe. Oh, my gosh. And, it's been um, a while. It's, I'm ready for, it's a, lot of for a change of change of scenery and pace. But I'm sitting there, and I get to the end of this story. And it's funny. There's some stories that I read that I'm like, oh, that's sad. Right, that yeah. made a point that that's sad, or that um, illustrated something about human human nature that's unfortunate. This story made me really sad. Yeah, it wasn't just the observance or the recognition of something that was unfortunate or sad. It made me really, really sad. I got to the end of the story and I was very bummed. Don't you think because it really just touched on something quite real? We, Unfortunately, yeah, big that time. We all do. And it might yes. not be to that level that we use people or we manipulate them to do something where we're using them. <laughs> Maybe they're making an action, but we've really manipulated them into it. We all we do it if we're honest to some to some degree or another. We have that capacity, at least we have to acknowledge. I, I think what got me is there definitely is this theme in the book of a person, excuse me, in the short story of a person being used as a means to an end. And like yes. and like you said, there's nothing more universal than that when it comes to human brokenness and, and, and human depravity. This idea that I don't view you as an end. I view you as the means to an end. Yeah. But I think what really got me about this story was just the shift, how... They went from courting her to do this thing to a total dismissal of her. Yes. No putting it down kind of softly, no transition, just the juxtaposition. I know we're getting ahead of ourselves of the party when everybody was celebrating that they're going to be able to leave mm-hmm. to the scene while they were getting in the coach, in the, coach yeah. the next day. Yes. It was just so jarring. Yes. And it was terrible terrible um and that that really stayed with me and i i think honestly we've we've probably all been on one side of that yes maybe to not the extent of of our main character and what she had to do to get the um people out of the 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 end but who knows but yeah we we've been people who have used others and we have been people that have been used and you know that empty, empty feeling you feel in your chest when you've been used or you've been dismissed and your humanity has not been recognized. It's the worst. Yeah. Um, it. I want to go to the beginning here because I think that there was, um, when I was reading it the first time, I had underlined this part towards the very beginning be, because I had a sense that this might, there might be something um that Maupassant was saying here that was a bit of uh, that he was foreshadowing possibly the end. Um, I can't, I'm on my Kindle, so I can't really say what page number, but there's a few paragraphs in. Um, he says, you might have highlighted this too, 
um, somewhere around the end of where he's saying pillaging in the name of the sword, he's describing what's happening, you know, with these soldiers. I this. see your you highlighted it in yellow, and I highlighted it. Ah, my stuff we in both blue. have the same book. That's right. We're on our so. <laughs> on our Kindles. Um, so he says, and giving th- uh, let's see, pillaging in the name of the sword, and giving thanks to God, to the thunder of cannon. All these are appalling scourges which destroy all belief in eternal justice. All that confidence we have been taught to feel in the protection of heaven and the reason of man. I felt like as I was reading that to begin with, I said, I think there might be something here that he's foreshadowing when we get to the end. And I got to the end and I, and, and I think that is the case. Um, That's a really good point. I, I think that uh, you definitely come away with uh, skepticism towards religion and even a, 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 a needed critique, obviously, like we have of, of yeah, his, his characters in, in religious scenes. A, a problem I have sometimes when I watch a show or I'm reading a book, it becomes this very um, polemical, but at the same time, intellectually shallow and lazy criticism of religion. Right, right. And you go, oh. I was watching a show recently. There's a show on Amazon called The Expanse, and it's a science fiction show, and I was looking for something to watch. And so many times I find myself not wanting to watch a show, not because of the plot, but because of all these little silly kind of um, postmodern critiques that they throw in there that are somewhat unnecessary. However, the critique of religion in this story was incredibly valid. And and need it. And it's it's interesting when when it when you do sense that this isn't coming from kind of like a like a one up or or a, or trying to when it's coming from no, this is wrong and this sincere, happens. Yes, there's a sincere now I do I do if I remember correctly in like what I've read biographically about him, I do think he had a hostility to some degree, um, toward religion. Yet we are still in an era that where people really are still the product of we're very much religious society. So um, he, he, you know, I think there was a hostility toward toward the conventions, religious conventions that he grew up in, and so he's he's giving these critiques here and there. Well, France is interesting because France is at times in history you will not find a more Catholic place, yeah, right? But at the same time, it's also where the French Revolution took place, um, and you see that with their political debates. In the coach, those yeah. the aristocracy versus this this idea of tearing down the aristocracy and people had different political factions, which is interesting because they were being invaded by the Prussians, yeah, and they were unified in a sense against that. But you could right. see all the um, the factions that existed in France that were, um, I, I guess, not put together by the the collective resistance to the invasion, but not everybody was on the same page. Well, and so you had this main character, Boule de Souf. Um, it's funny, the translation is ball of fat. And she is this very um, attractive in her way. Um, yeah. Interesting. But. Um, I try to picture her in my head and I couldn't. Well, this is also like a different era of. When beauty is. Well, yes. More voluptuous and yes, not not skinny. <laughs> but clearly she was appealing to. Right, the men in obviously the story. A beautiful, yes, obviously an a, attractive, appealing woman um, who had a certain reputation, and so we have this woman who's sort of the main character in this coach full of people traveling to get out of this area who've been given. Um, they're kind of at the mercy of the Prussians mm-hmm. as they travel, but they've been given permission to travel. Yes. Yet, of course, they get to this. 
places they have to stop and they're going extremely slow because they have to go through the snow and, and et cetera, this terrible weather. So they're going at a snail's pace. And I think we've all been on that car trip where like you thought the exit for food, you thought you had like some more options up ahead. So you, <laughs> you, you know, you passed the exits that just had like the Bojangles or the, you know, the places you really were You're waiting excited. for the Chick-fil-A. You're waiting for the Chick-fil-A. So they, I think they had some opportunities along the way to maybe stop and were kicking themselves that they hadn't because there really was there was nothing. I mean, they were also in the snow and, and mostly they were kicking themselves because they didn't bring things with, with them. So they're in the middle of like hours in here, really hungry. And Buldasuf pulls out like feast <laughs> this basket full of do you have it like i'm trying to, can you no i didn't it? highlight any of it but um but all right, i don't know if i'm like close if you were by. doing the the readings this week or was it last week the fish and the loaves that's what kind of we had going on here it reminded me of the jesus and the fish and the loaves that, like this a basket that was like, like, like not unlimited. never ending they and, picked and, up scraps and, and, and no one noticed it or smelt the food the entire trip until she pulls it like from under her feet Oh my gosh! And it sounded really good. I've never had. Um, was it like a chicken leg? Chicken legs in covered jelly. Covered in jelly. I think. Um, Sounds good. So she feeds them, right? I mean, everybody is just who's starving. Everyone has plenty to eat. But okay, she does feed them. Yes. But before they know she has food, they don't even want to look at her. But once they realize she has something that they need, yes. Then they're, they're all quite all, polite. Yes. All and then they polite. need her. And then they eat the food. And then the things kind of settle back to, to how they were. Mm-hmm. So they, they changed their behavior greatly. But you know what's interesting? They did that with the food. They also, when they were trying to convince her to, to have the affair with the Prussian soldier, mm-hmm. the person who was in charge, they convinced themselves that they were doing the morally right thing. Oh, yes, which one must do in order to do the even, morally even reprehensible the thing that you want to have happen so that you can get, you know, get what you want. But it would have been actually more, I don't want to say more honorable if they said, we know this is terrible, but can you just do this? We know this is really messed up, but we want to get out of here. Right. Just do it. Right. No, they created this whole philosophy, this theology, this whole way of. It, it was very. Convince themselves as well as as well as manipulate her into. To have uh, to feel guilty that she, and it's funny because I think the argument that those people make is, well, you you sort of do this anyways, say for a living because it's not really that really wasn't. She just had a certain reputation as a kind of woman, right? So they basically said, well, you kind of you do that, you act this way on a. Yeah, why would it be any different with this guy? Yeah, why can't you just um, give the soldier what he wants and? And we'll all get out of here. And and how is that a problem for you? But this character has this sense of dignity and honor that comes out in a um, sort of patriotic way, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. She senses like, oh, this is not appropriate. Like we're in the middle of these people, you know, we're in the middle of hostile soldiers trying to take over our country. And... I have absolutely no respect for these people. She had sort of a standard of behavior, if you will, um, which they were, you know, scoffing at. But nonetheless, she had a sense of pride, um, national pride. That so, too, there was that. But I think she also, even if she was promiscuous, she wanted it to be her decision. 
Yes, yes. In these situations, like, well, if I want to be with this man, I'm going to be the one who chooses that. Even if you think I am to um, frequently doing these things, I don't want it to be imposed upon me by other people or by the circumstances. So she she had a a uh, moral code of her own yes. that actually, in some ways, that was she stuck to that she was, was consistent yeah, with yes. more so than the, the other people in the coach. Yes, it's interesting. There was this part, sort of in the middle, and um, describing these uh, some of the people in the coach. These six people occupied the farther end of the coach and represented society with an income. The strong, established society of good people with religion and principle. Um, so obviously, he has a critique there too. What these, you know, good people with religion and principle, and how they fall short. And even even the nuns, and, and the argument of the nuns at the end of the story was the one that seemed to put the nail in the coffin with her making the decision. Right, mm-hmm. this nun is telling me that this is um, okay. And actually, if, if you do know anything about Catholic moral theology, the nun was completely wrong. Right. And that is, that is not the church teaching this idea of the ends just to find the means. Yes, um, quite the opposite. But yeah, it was it was strange that that was the case. You know, it's there's this there's this book, if you ever have the chance to read this book, you should even though it's incredibly powerful and and hard to read. It's called The Road. It's by Cormac MacArthur or McCarthy, excuse me. And one of the major themes in in the book is it's this post-apocalyptic world and most of the population to survive has resorted to cannibalism. And this and it's just this really kind of vague story about this boy and his father walking to try to find anything. They're just they're going somewhere. And his father always said we we that he's used these terms like we carry the light, we carry the hope. And if if it comes between this idea of dying and having to resort to cannibalism, we die. Yeah. We don't do that to live. Right. And there is this idea that this is more valuable than than just survival. Yes. And it's very, very powerful in the story. And it's compared to this incredibly dark scenario and this dark um, scenery and these and these really, really bad people. But they will never violate this. Yeah. Because what what is civilization? What is life if this is violated? Um, and on a kind of a, a more palatable level, not as intense as The Road, not nearly as intense. I don't know if any book is as intense as The Road. Those who, who've read it know what I'm talking about. Th- this idea that, well, if we, we compromise our upbringing, our religion, right? Right. For when it's convenient, then it's worthless. Right. Then it's it's meaningless. It just becomes kind of um, window dressing. Yeah. Well, so one more note before we move on. Like back at the beginning of the coach, when she pulls out this basket and they emptied it quickly of all of the food that she had brought. The next paragraph says, they could not eat this girl's provisions without speaking to her. So they began to talk stiffly at first, then as she seemed by no means forward with great freedom, with greater freedom. So like this idea of what you said, they're just sort of this, oh, well, we have to, you know, this, this conviction, oh, we're eating her food. We have to, you know, we have to. When you were a kid, the kid had the nice toy, the oh, video yeah. game. And you're like, well, we can't just like go into his house and say we want to play Mario Brothers. Kind of have to pretend we have to act, ask yeah. friendly to him until he lets oh us gosh. play. So true. I mean, everyone does this to an extent. But it's it's really, really, really sad and it's really, really despicable. So let's go then to the end. I, I think the way that he writes this, like this gradual progression toward the end where you know 
this is going to happen. They're pressuring her again through this manipulative over a couple of days Mm -hmm. of, um, by the way, conversation about what, what one should do for the sake of the greater good or, or what have you, like we were talking about, you know, so we get to the end and there's one gentleman who sort of is standing up for her and telling all the others that, you know, they're complete, um, you know, scoundrels that they just, that they're devising this plan to manipulate this woman to do this thing so they can leave this in and not be held at the mercy of uh, the Germans. Um, So he's the only one who, uh, who is not, in cahoots with the rest of this group but you get to the um the end here right so they have they figured out they found out that she's decided she's going to do it she's going to go to the officer and then and they'll all be able to leave in the morning and what do they immediately do um the man the one gentleman who i can't remember his name at the moment i was trying to find it um who was sort of standing up for her you know, leaves the room in, in, in disgust, and the others um, start gossiping about him. Like, oh, the reason he didn't join us is because he's infatuated with her, and he, he, you know, begins to tell them all the story about, oh yes, isn't this hilarious? This is what I saw the first night we were here, and blah blah blah. So there's just this belittling, joking, you know, putting people down. This this such a such a real phenomenon that we mm-hmm. see all the time. We have to. In order not to feel conviction that we've done wrong to another human being, we have to put that person down. We have to belittle them, make them seem silly, right? Yeah, little kids do it. Adults do it. You see it when when people gang up and they put the other person down. And if you don't believe in uh, original sin, you, you <laughs> clearly don't have children. You um, haven't been to the playground, right? And you're not being honest with yourself. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, you're you're in denial. And you know, it just kind of comes to the surface. You don't need to be taught these things. And But we know it's despicable. We know it's not right. It reminds me of C.S. Lewis in one of his arguments of the existence of God and mere Christianity is there's this thing called this moral code that we all know exists, but none of us can can keep it, right? Yeah. That's a strange, that's a strange predicament. Um, but you see this in the story. They use this woman. And then one right when she she agrees to do this thing, they kind of have a party that night. They all get they all get drunk. They all mm-hmm. make these jokes. Then the the most tragic part of the entire story for me though, and you knew this was coming. It was just the masterpiece also of the author completing this circle of they're in the coach again. It's going to take them a long time to get where they're going, and somebody else has food right. And who's the one person they don't give food to? Yeah, in the coach, and she sits there sobbing. She's in this coach. She's crying because she knows she's been used. These people are right around. They could care less. She's the one that gave them food out of her own generosity in the beginning of the short story. Well, she's wounded, but this is where it echoed back to that part I that I highlighted at the beginning about justice. She is a character that has a grave sen- great sense of justice, right? Mm-hmm. You see that throughout the story. And so part of her, she's very personally wounded, mm. but she's also irate because she sees the injustice. Yeah, she recognizes this. Of these people's behavior. Almost, she sees it as a person who's been wounded, but she sees it standing back as a person witnessing this awful 
thing that has happened and these awful people and it's the injustice of it that takes her over and i think that de, uh, that guy de maupassant is really highlighting there there is a he's rightly identifying this flaw in humanity but i think that he is he's also taking a a dismal view of human nature right that like we're He's observ- what his observation is, perhaps, is that yet justice that we think exists in, you know, under the under heaven really doesn't. Can I read this part right here? Oh, this yes. is the scene at the end of the story. Oh, that's what I was going to read, but go ahead. Yes. No one looked at her. No one thought of her. She felt herself swallowed up in the scorn of these virtuous creatures who at first sacrificed, then rejected her as a thing useless and unclean. Then she remembered her big basket full of the good things they had so greedily devoured. The two chickens coated in jelly, the pies, the pears, the four bottles of claret. And her fury broke forth like a cord that is overstrained. And she was on the verge of tears. She made terrible efforts at self-control, drew herself up, swallowed the sobs which choked her. But the tears rose nevertheless shone at the brink of her eyelids, and soon two heavy drops coursed slowly down her cheeks. Others followed more quickly, like water filtering from a rock, and fell, one after another, on her round bosom. She sat upright with a fixed expression, her face pale and rigid, hoping desperately that no one saw her give way. But they did. They did notice it. And, um, of course, made their own comments Mm. about... How, what they interpreted the tears to be um and then she but she just has the the her one friend her one the one person who man uh Cornundet, i think is how you say his name um saw her discomfort the discomfort and uh oh no sorry he saw what was happening to her and so, so he starts humming the words to the uh did you say you looked up the I did the translation. It's like it's it was sort of a nationalist uh, national. Yeah, it was like anthem. Mm-hmm. Um, I wish I still had it, but I I didn't. I just I googled it in Google Translate, and then I closed the window. But he was like, was he using a whistle or something? I can't remember. He basically was, or is he just whistling quite loudly and whistled the louder? Yeah, <laughs> annoying, just making quite a abrasive noise to everyone in the coach. Um, that kind of took the attention away from her. Well, it, it's, it's it's interesting because who are the real villains, right? right. Is it the Prussians right. or is, is it her countrymen that treated her like this? But you know what came to mind to kind of take this to what's going on today? And I don't, I don't mean to do that. But I really – I had a professor that was one of the best. He was actually not even a professor. He was just an assistant teacher at Holy Apostles College and Seminary. And I never – he was one of the best people that I've ever um, – had the, the pleasure to learn from because he really grinded me on my writing. And he always said, hey, when you're when you're arguing like a moral something, he goes, use the controversy as the launching point, which I mm. thought was kind of, and I do that in the classroom, which is high risk, high reward, yeah. but it works. But in this story, what we when I, when I watch the news, it's like no one does evil things. Right. Like the only, the only reason you did something evil is you weren't like hugged enough as a kid or, or, but you don't, you're not really responsible for that. Well, actually it's not true. Yeah. People do evil things when they're on the other side of the political spectrum and it, and it justifies your narrative. Mm-hmm. But the people who are on your side, they're never responsible 
for their acts, right? Arguably, people in general, when we talk about them abstractly, yes. Like evil's not, it it doesn't exist. Evil's not really a thing. There's just kind of this therapeutic bull crap. Yeah. And if we're honest with ourselves, we know that we are capable of the actions of the people that are in this coach. Yes. That we've been on both sides, that evil does exist and that it rears its head. Um, We have to start by looking at us. I'm reading a fantastic book about St. Catherine of Siena. The Word on Fire just published, and I can't remember the name of the priest who's the author. Um, But I think it's Mystic of Fire, I think is the title and has a longer subtitle. But in one part of his book, he's comparing um, Carl Jung, mm-hmm. the, um, psychologist, with and his perspective on on what you're saying, like this: where does evil come from, and the fact that we, um, his views in psychology about the shadow in ourself and how we, he of course has anti-religious views that want to hold God responsible for some evil in the world, but he was paralleling um, Freud. No, he was paralleling, the author was paralleling Jung's um, perspective about the shadow with St. Catherine's own talking about the the shadow in ourselves. And two very different perspectives, seeing the same thing, but a different way of dealing with the evil. But both people were saying, you can't not deal with this in yourself. Now, Jung and Catherine Sian obviously had different conclusions about what you do when you confront that Mm -hmm. evil in you, right? Um, but Jung was saying, you're going to inevitably project this onto other people if you don't acknowledge it yourself. And St. Catherine herself was saying the cell of self-knowledge is where we are able to look exact, look at ourselves very clearly and see the evil that's in us, but then turn to God and see his love for us and be able to reconcile that. It's there. an evil, too, that even if you are a saint, even if you're a person who's moving towards virtue, it's right below the surface. Percy does a great job, Walker Percy, in his stories because his protagonist might go through a transformation, but it's not this naive transformation where at the end of the book, he's all good for all eternity. Right. No, right. He, he's still in process. And there's always this idea that he or, or she is one turn away right. from depravity again. So it, it's, it's something that I think about often, especially in our day and age. And this story really confronted you with that yeah. um, in a very powerful, powerful way. It was great. It was great. And I would highly recommend reading. You have to pronounce it because I don't want to. Guy de Maupassant. Very good. Good choice, Jess. Once again, you killed it. Well, listen in next month. We're going to be reading and discussing Edgar Allan Poe. And Mike picked a couple of good stories for us next month. Yeah. So. One, just to give a preview, is The Mask of Red Death. And if you have read it, and you don't understand its relevancy. Well, I think from the title, perhaps you could guess its relevancy. Yeah, but of, of what, of kind of a current context, then um, you need to think about it a little bit more and you need to reread it. But those, those, the stories we're doing, I believe we're going to do The Masquerade Death and The Black Cat. They're, they're pretty short, so they're super fun. But we look forward to doing that this month. It's funny we're doing Edgar Allan Poe in August. Maybe we should have done October, but in the well, future, because it's spooky. I don't think we thought things through to that. Uh, that was a whole nother level of yeah, intention. Maybe, maybe <laughs> All right, guys. Take care. Bye.